This week's episode contains mentions of bulimia and suicidal idealization. While there's nothing explicit, it could be triggering for some. It's okay if you need to skip this one. Do what's right for you. This is Unsilent, a speak series from No Stigmas that champions mental health advocacy and challenges the stigmas that prevent people from getting the help they need. I'm Eli Lawson, a producer for the show. In our final episode of the season, No Stigmas Lance Board Alone will be having a conversation with Christy Tate, a New York Times bestselling author and mental health advocate. We'll hear about Christy's religious upbringing and how various factors led to an early battle with bulimia and negative body image. But we'll also see how one group therapy session proved to be a major turning point in Christy's life. You can read the whole story in her book, which is linked in the show notes. Thank you for being here. If you want to learn more or contact us, visit nostigmas.org. Don't face it alone. Be unsilent. Awesome. Okay, cool. So we're going to jump in. Um, I'm so happy that you are with us. Um, I was introduced to you through Hillary with the kind of the book club idea. Um, who's connected to our founder. So it was, you know, once I started click, 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 I was like, I need to talk to her. And so I'm glad that I kind of reached out and I'm so happy that you had time to just throw me into your schedule. Oh yeah. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. These conversations, any conversation about mental health is important and I consider it a priority. Awesome. That's, that's why we are wanting to do this series is, you know, because you can go to, we've kind of had this conversation internally about, you know, People can go to doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and get the clinical, but the storytelling is not something that you can always access. So that's what we want to do. And you're obviously a storyteller, so it's a perfect fit to have you. So um, for me and for our listeners, let's go back to the beginning. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and kind of your connection to the cause? Sure. So I grew up in Dallas and I had a home life that was mostly stable, but some of the factors that impacted me, I understand now negatively was we were very Catholic and I internalized a lot of messages about being tough and enjoying pain. I'm not even saying that the Catholic church told me that, but I, you know, when I'm seeing the agony of Christ and all these bloody things, I was like, Oh, that's how you become a good person. That's how you are sanctified and justify yourself. Like I was a pretty morbid kid and you throw that on there and it was like gas on a fire. (laughs) And when I was in second grade, I remember praying at night, praying for the stigmata, which is super morbid. If my, and I didn't tell anyone, I thought that's what we were supposed to be doing. So also in, I was really, really into ballet, which is a problem because I was, ballet is a pretty rigid art form. And it certainly was in the seventies and eighties. Nobody knew how to talk to little girls about their bodies. No one, mm. no one was talking about shame. And I would just go there twice a week with my whole heart out on display. And I would be told suck in your stomach. Could you lose weight? My ballet teacher when I was in seventh grade. So now I'm hitting puberty and I have a lot on my plate emotionally right and i'm not talking to anyone i have no there's no mental health support at this point and she's like couldn't you go on the diet where you just eat three eggs in the morning and three eggs at night and that's it so and that was the person i loved and trusted the most in the world outside of my parents and so into this i become bulimic and i'm extremely perfectionistic there's some alcoholism there's also recovery in my family 
which is wonderful and probably saved me untold agony. But into addiction, I became my own sort of addict and I was bulimic. And thank goodness when I got to college, I just hit bottom, probably because I saw my parents, my parents who's in recovery, I saw him go to meetings and I was like, well, is there anything for those of us with eating problems? I got into a 12 step program for eating and it saved my, I mean, I don't know what would have happened to me if I'd have kept binging and purging. That does not end well. And mm. And it was wonderful to get the miracle of recovery, but there was still something else missing in me and, or broken. I don't know the, I don't know the best words to talk. All these conversations, I don't want to make it sound like, I don't want to use bad language. Language right. really, really matters. Um, right, right. There were, let's, I, the most neutral way I can say it is I was missing a lot of skills because mm. during during skill acquisition years, I was binging, I was purging, I was crying right. in my room and I had all these secrets. And so I became a young adult who didn't know how to have lasting relationships. And I was so sad about it. And I didn't think there was any hope. I just thought, okay, well, I know I'm smart. So I'll go to law school and I will have a great career and I'll just try to work so much that I won't notice. I have no friends and no family and no boyfriend and no children that was going to be my consolation prize. Mm. The problem with that, which is obvious, but what, what, <laughs> why, why I couldn't execute it. You is didn't I see of, it at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I'm kind of a genius, you know, <laughs> in, in the same way that like when I first started purging, I was like, this is great. What's the yeah. downside, you know? Oh my a, gosh. <laughs> a very naive, short-sighted solution to a problem. And yeah. I just developed suicidal ideation. Like my, my life force, my recovery, something inside of me was like, please get help so you can have more. Like that's sort of what, like, don't do this. Don't, don't do this. And mm -hmm. I ended up going to see a therapist, which I didn't think I could afford. Didn't think I liked, I didn't like him. And I actually could afford him because it was group, which is one third the cost of an individual session. I, the catch is you have to share your session with seven people. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, it was like, obviously that the, the book is sort of why, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you. So we'll get to the group piece too, because I've never experienced that. I want to hear about that. Right. So when I got, when I, you know, I'm, I'm in law school, I'm doing very well because I know how to do school. Don't have to talk to anybody. You just make good grades. When I started having this suicidal ideation, people I knew from meetings were saying, you know what, you need more help. And I kept saying, well, the 12 step program is all I need, but I did, I did need more help. Mm -hmm. And I was willing to check out this therapist and it started this journey. I'm still on two hours ago. I just had a group session. So I'm still there. I don't, I'm a person who stays for a long time when something works and it still seems to work for me. And I, I, I get a lot of questions from people like, why do you still go to therapy? When do you graduate? one of the conversations I think that is interesting to have about this and we may get to that, which is we don't in this country, we go to therapy when there's an emergency and when the crisis has passed, we leave. And there's other ways to think of it more like going to the gym or, mm -hmm. and I recognize there's a lot of barriers for a lot of people right. financial and time wise. Right. And I definitely recognize that, but if nothing else, I have made a lot of people uncomfortable because I still go to, I go to a lot of therapy still to this day, even though my life is wonderful and stable, I still want the support because I, I think we all deserve scaffolding for these complex lives that we're living. I love that. 
I love that. So you started, how old were you when you, when you started going to group? Was I that started, college, law school? That was law school. So I was 27. Okay. And how did you, I mean, so I've heard you talk about, um, you know, the eat, disordered eating, suicidal ideation. I mean, had you, what was the conversation like in your family growing up? Like had you yeah. mentioned sort of not really having, you know, social interactions or kind of focusing on one thing to stay focused. But I mean, did you have conversations about any of that? Yeah. Every now and then when I look back now, I can see, I was trying to have these conversations and I was trying to get caught. I had, I went to babysit one night and this would have been, I was probably in eighth grade and I went to babysit, babysit a family, friends of my parents. And while I was there, I was binging and purging and I left a lot of evidence. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And they called my parents and like, we think that Christy was like growing up while she was here. And my parents called me into the living room. They wanted to know about this. I lied through my teeth. I don't know what you're talking about. That didn't happen. And that's denial. They, right. it, I, no, None of us had the skills to deal with something as serious as bulimia and whatever else was going on with me. And so, and then it happened again at home. Um, my mom like found some evidence in the bathroom that something strange was happening in there. And I was, I like blamed it on our cat. And you're so, I, 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 I have no grudge against my parents, but the truth is we did not have the skills to have those conversations. And so I could, I could lie my way out of it and just say, right. no, it's nothing. It's the cat. It, that's absurd. My parents are very smart people, but that's how strong addiction is. That's how painful mm. it is to address. You pull the thread of one person in the family's illness and everyone has to look at themselves and the whole system kids have eating disorders or people have addiction it's a family system i'm not a therapist mm -hmm. but like i understand <laughs> we were all interconnected and yeah. for me to like fall into crisis would have required all of us to do a lot of deep work we were not yet ready to do yeah did you feel that pressure to did you know that as a kid did you feel that pressure to not share with them because you knew on some level that maybe you were gonna burden them or you were gonna yeah. require something of them that they weren't able to provide a hundred percent i yeah. had i had a little bit of therapy when i was a kid like you know two or three sessions and then i my experiences my parents were like you done you, you good and i was like e i knew the answer was supposed to be yes even though right. we hadn't even gotten started and one time i was like this was, it seemed like all, all, there's a lot of points in my childhood where I felt like I was reaching a crisis and I could feel it, you know, you feel it inside of you yeah. and I was scared. And I remember saying something to my parents and my mom said, you know, you could just decide to be okay. You could just decide to be okay. And it sounded like a dream, like I could. And so in how I internalized that message mm. was, you this is mind over matter don't be weak or gross and don't don't give in to this lower part of your nature that seems to be flailing about decide to be okay and so i think it's not i think i had to find recovery when i left the household because it just wasn't something i could do in 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 the system that i was in right wow I'm I'm trying I'm trying so hard to keep my personal story off the table, but, but just so you know, I have there's so many things in just ten minutes that I'm like, connect, connect, connect. I completely connect on you. Yeah, 
Um, so I am not someone who understands a lot about, uh, you know, disordered eating. Can you walk me through, I know that we're not you know, clinicians and we're not doctors, but walk me through like, wh what were you experiencing and, and how did that, I mean, how did that coexist with your life? Like, how are you, Yeah. you know, I mean, what, I guess in other words, what was happening that took you to a point where you said you hit rock bottom, you know, like what was yeah. that? I think, you know, I had, I was preoccupied with my body for, from a very young age. And I, it's a confluence of events, right? Like I was into mm -hmm. ballet, you put on a leotard, I saw how skinny other girls were. I was also, I was not, again, like language is so scary. Like the charts at the, at the pediatrician were that I was overweight Right. I was not fat, but I was overweight. And as a consequence, I don't recall my pediatrician like shaming me, but I remember feeling shame. Mm -hmm. And my mom, I remember she would make lunch for me and my, my, my dad and I were more of the portly ones in the family. We were fleshier and then everybody else was like trended toward this thin side. And so we would have a different lunch and it was a different kind of plate. And there was like this effort to control our eating. So that's part, I mean, eating hmm. and body is, body image is a huge part of it, of course. But what I came to understand later was I had stuffed all these feelings, like everything. I'd stuffed everything. I was a little girl in Texas in the 80s, and I was supposed to smile and be sweet and make people like me. Hmm. As a consequence, I had years of rage just like stuffed down to my heels, then my knees, and hmm. An eating disorder isn't just about being thin. It's about right. all the repressed feelings. And I had a traumatic, I was involved in a traumatic accident right before high school where a friend of mine, we went to Hawaii and her dad drowned while we were there. I was already bulimic by the time we went to the beach and her father died. But coming back, now I have a legit, I can point to traumatic event. No one's going to dispute that was traumatic. Right. But now I've got the pressure to come back and be okay. Like, I remember I was really sad. Like, this was two months after the accident. I'm in, like, freshman trigonometry, having a very hard time. And I remember my mom was like, can't you just be okay? Like, mm. she needed me to be okay. And I was mm. not okay. But I knew how to play the part. So right. part of that was just like, well, I'm going to have to eat a ton and then when I get tired of being fat, I'm going to throw it up. And that's just how it went in my 13, 14, 15 year old brain. Right. And then that's all a secret. So now I've added a secret onto that. Mm. And it's really hard to keep the kind of bulimia a secret when you are eating that much. I mean, people are going to notice if all the Teddy grams are gone, you know, yeah. the, the morning after Thanksgiving, yeah. there's no pie left. Where right. did the pie go? So mm. It was a very um, stressful, all secrets are stressful and full of shame. And, you know, I was like, and I got a job. So I had to get a job to support my habit. And I got a job at a bakery. Oh so gosh. now I'm the alcoholic who works at a bar, like a bite of this, a bite of that. And when I think about that, it's just little Christy was trying so hard to survive. And her mm. addiction was just like wildly out in the open, but no one knew what to look for. Right. So many people that um, I've gotten to speak to both on this series and just in this job have just 
over and over and over said that I don't feel seen. I didn't feel seen. I didn't feel heard. I didn't feel seen. That seems to be a common thread and it manifests in so many uh, different ways, you, you know, diagnosed or undiagnosed or not something that's diagnosable. But um, I mean, how, I guess, how kind of segueing into your recovery and, you know, those steps that you've taken, when did you first feel seen? When did you first feel heard? Was there a moment? Yeah, I, I mean, I had the very miraculous feeling of the first time I went into a 12-step meeting and there was a, I went to a newcomer's meeting and it was like 30 minutes before the actual meeting. So it was me and just one other woman. She was not my age. She was not mm. my size. She was not bulimic, but she was talking about the way that she ate and the shame she felt about it. And instantly for the first time in my life, I was talking to someone who had what I had and was in a space where they wanted to get better. And she's told me that she did get better. And I like even talking about it now, I feel that's as close to ecstasy as I like, <laughs> like the ecstatic feelings. Not the Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, there is just, I will never, ever, ever forget my awe at that first conversation. And I've probably had thousands of conversations since I've been on both sides of a conversation with someone hurting around food. I cannot I cannot believe the power of a story between mm. two people who are suffering and 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 witnessing each other. Right. And so I would say that very first recovery meeting was the first time I felt really seen and safe to say the things I'd been hiding from the world for by that point like 12 years. That's a long time. If you or someone you know is experiencing a crisis, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800 273-8255 or visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org for support via live chat. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, please call 911. Other resources are linked in the show notes. Yeah. Wow. How did you, uh, what was the process? I, you know, as someone who's, who's, you know, I've gone through therapy and, and, um, a lot of therapy, um, what is group like like what is a group experience i mean did you have any kind of anxiety or, or skepticism up front and or was were there anything that you were kind of nervous about going into a group um, therapy yeah i was terrified i was I, well okay yes a hundred percent i was terrified who's going to be there i didn't know were they going to be like scary criminals mm. or i was scared of that but i was also like what if they're super boring and their problems are like oh, I wish I had more money. Like, like not not because they were poor, but just because they were like, wanted more money. Like, what if they were like, not didn't share my values and didn't know crisis? I was really scared. I didn't, until I went to group, I did not have the imagination to visualize, oh, I would connect with these people. Even though I'd been in 12-step program for almost seven years by then, I couldn't picture who goes to group, pays this money, to this wild man <laughs> and what who's who's this going to be and he told my first group was a professionals group and i was like i don't even know what that means professionals it was anybody who needed a license to practice their profession and i was a law student so that qualified me because my job was going to be a lawyer so i get in there and it's like lawyers dentists and doctors and i'm like uh what? Like they just looked like straight laced people who had like never known pain and they had little briefcases. And I was really scared that I was scared of being seen. Mm. 
like that your point it's what i it this is like the dilemma mm. of a person in mental health crisis you are die i was dying to be seen and terrified so i did a lot of push pull right. in everywhere i went in my life like see me see me and then it's like you turn around christy's mm. gone like i would just vaporize from situations and the thing about group is i what I went because it was cheaper. Like, that's why I went. And oh, and another reason was a friend of mine who I knew from 12 step world, she was had been struggling mightily in her marriage. And she just something changed in her. And I saw it. And people probably have had this experience where you're like a friend is different. You're like, what'd you do? Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, I stopped drinking or I got a new therapist. And you're like, well, tell me, <laughs> slip me the secret. Right. And she was like a real testimony. Like there was a light on in her eyes that I'd never seen and I wanted to draw near. And so I had that as a sort of idea in my head, like this is a place where people get well. And when I got there, I, I, I do think I'm group was, I was suitable for group because I was super lonely. So people like it was scary, but I also was like hungry yeah. for that. Mm. And I really like people and I'm pretty extroverted it doesn't mean an introverted person can't do group, but I think I was able to adapt quicker because I really did. I did want to hear, I was curious about these lives and why mm -hmm. are you here? And there was another guy, a, a psychiatrist started the same day that I did. So I kind of felt like I had a little buddy. I was like a, a new kid and there was someone else there. And one thing that struck me from the very beginning about group was there's nowhere to hide. There's all these eyes. There's these people. I never thought about that. Like, I never thought about that. It's, yeah, it's like they could see my body. Like when I crossed my legs, I something we were all talking and something got uncomfortable and I crossed my legs, a gesture that I didn't pay any attention to and everyone was staring at me. I'm like, what? And they're like, you just crossed your legs. I'm like, so what? <laughs> And they were like, that means you're feeling shame. Like, it's like people are reading me. Whoa, They're reading my I body and I was being seen. I never thought about that. That's so true. Yeah, it's a wonderful, terrible thing <laughs> to be in a fishbowl. And I have a lot of ambivalence about it even today. But on the whole, I think I'm better for tolerating my witnesses and letting myself be seen in all my mess. That is a gift. They... I haven't been abandoned yet. And I've been there 20 plus years. I have not been abandoned no matter how ugly and how stinky I feel or I am when I put my junk out into the group, you know? I love that. So what is the, I mean, the experience in a group therapy is, you know, we all see representations of group therapy in the media. Yeah. So, but is when you're in that space and once you kind of get past the, the nerves and the getting to know the group and who they are and, is there really an interaction between all of the people in the room or does it tend to happen between you and maybe the facilitator and then a couple of interjections or like, what's oh. the, what's the communication style? Like, like, how does that work? Yeah, it actually varies widely within the group. In my experience, there are some sessions where I spend a lot of time talking to Dr. Rosen. Mm -hmm. I mean, not a ton, but we may go back and forth in a conversation and then everybody's sitting quietly that tends to be rarer but it happens i would say that happens like twice a year okay otherwise it's people pinging off each other in the moment yeah. so it's it's not like i come in and say oh i had this memory about my mom it's more like hey patrice when you cut me off five minutes ago i felt super angry 
And then Patrice has a reaction to that, which is either, it could be anything, mm -hmm. right? And so now you're doing it in the moment. Now Patrice is like my, my stand-in for my idea of my mom, but we're doing it right here in the here and now. And then other people chime in and they take her side or they take my side or they point things out. And my thing in group is I tend to be very defensive. I'm a very defensive. I come to the world very full of fear and shame. And so my first reactions are going to be, Oh, I feel ashamed. So I'm going to be defensive. Mm. Like that's, that's just a classic Christie MO. And I'm still unraveling that all these years later. And now I, there's a little space between getting feedback from someone and saying, okay, I'm curious about, I'm curious about mm -hmm. myself instead of, oh, I'm a piece of shit. Wow. I, I think the best tool that group has given me is curiosity about myself and others, as opposed to pathologizing or criticizing or feeling criticized. Like, let's just look at this. Let's slow mm. down and look at what everybody's feeling and what it brings up. And how could I do this differently? Because if I can do it differently in group, I can do it differently in my marriage and with my children and at work. And it's really transformative. Wow. That, did you see my jaw? It started to drop. <laughs> <laughs> like I physically was like, what? My mind just yeah, but I never thought about that. I never ever thought about that because all of the talk therapy that I've experienced, or you know, sometimes wanting it, sometimes just really not. Um, it it does feel like you are just recounting yes experiences, and and then you know there have been so many sessions I remember, like even recently leaving, like I don't think I got anything out of that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I. But I'm a very like deliverables oriented person. Like, I, <laughs> I, I need the plan. I need the steps. I need you to tell me, like, what do I do in this situation? So I think putting myself in that situation would be so good for me because I would be actually experiencing the way you're describing it, like experiencing the reactions. Hello. Hi. <laughs> it's okay. I was like, I, your face was like. <laughs> no, I was thinking that's just so cool like to actually see your like you said if i can do it in this room i can do it in the real world i think that is so powerful so when you're describing group my no stigmas ears are like Bing! advocacy um you know what this organization is you know almost 12 years old now it started off being very self-care oriented and it has evolved thankfully i think to people like you or authors or speakers who are talking about mental health more, even, you know, you see it depicted in fictional, uh, you know, yeah. storylines, but I still, we, you know, we still feel that the, I guess the task is then, okay, great. So we understand this. We know the definition, we know the 10 steps to X, Y, Z, but like, what do we do when we sit at a table with our nieces, with our nephews, with our yeah. sister, mother, brother, like that's how I, I always take it because, you know, I have four nieces. Um, the third one is pretty much young Christy. Yeah. <laughs> in about 97% of what you've described. Yeah. Um, and it's hard. And yeah. she, she, you know, she's the one who genetically is just built differently than her yeah. sisters. And they're all in dance. And it's hard. It's really, really hard. And um, I try to tell them, like, don't care. Just don't care. What I know. Say. Just God. don't care. You think you care at 10 years old. You really think you, you know, it matters. It doesn't. <laughs> don't care. Um, so I guess, you know, what would you say to people or what do you say to people who 
you know, I, I can't wait to get your book. I'm actually going back to Louisiana this week, so I'm going to order it and get it there because everything is so expensive here. I, <laughs> um, I live in, by the way, I live, sidebar, I live in Italy. So, um, oh, got, really? Yeah, I got married and moved here with my husband. So, yeah. That's amazing. Okay. I know. It, it's kind of, it's like I was teaching for a while and then I just was like, I'm lacking my purpose. And um, yes. so when, when I, came across no stigmas and remote working and, you know, COVID, I was like, oh, this is perfect. And I have, went to LSU for PR. So I was like, okay, back to my roots. Um, and mental health. I mean, you're talking about recovery in a family. That resonates yeah. with me on so many levels, um, so many levels. But what I was saying was the, you know, what do we do with our friends and family? Because I believe, and I'm sure you believe, if we can just stop being overwhelmed by changing the world. Let's just impact our micro community. Let's yep. just impact our family and friends and school, you know, classmates, colleagues. What do we do with, with this? Like how, what do we do? What are actionable steps that we can take to be advocates? I think the first thing my instinct is I need to do my own work. And I think before I can pass anything on to anybody else, children or adults, I need to be looking at my own shit. And there's plenty there. And when I, and, and the other phrase that came to my mind, which means could mean different things for different people. But what I have noticed with my kids, like sometimes I'll, I'll feel this like pull to like, like be up my daughter's ass about her friendships or I'm, I'm like, Hmm, what's going on there? Inevitably I need to be looking at my own friendships and I'm projecting onto her mm. troubled waters or whatever. And really doing my own work is, I, I mean, that is, I think that would save the world. Like I, I was about to make a comment about world leaders. I'll step away from that. But um, <laughs> do you feel that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, but I, I don't want to interrupt. But with that idea, I was going to ask you, my next question was going to be about generational trauma. Do you, do you yeah. feel that there's a, a certain responsibility for us to stop traumatizing the next generation. Oh, Do you know what I mean? It yeah, sounds like I such mean, a basic question, but I, I know it happened in my life and, you know, being raised in a just, you know, Catholic small town, South Louisiana, gay, yeah. um, all that that brought, you know, and, and it's, it's like, I just, I can just feel, and I can feel in my own family, like my little niece is feeling pressure from some relatives. Yeah who may see themselves in a certain way and absolutely it's she's and she's got the biggest heart and she absorbs it so i'm um, yeah just to not to interrupt but just to think about this idea of like generational trauma like how can we break yeah that? i do think that intervening for those of us who can see more clear i i don't know i don't purport to be fully clear-eyed but <laughs> depends I am, on the day of the week it depends yeah, on the hour exactly. of the day <laughs> exactly but i do feel very clear that children we need to get our hands and, and comments off children's bodies, boys and girls. And I feel really clear about that. And I have, I hope that I've empowered my children both to let people know that they are in charge of their own bodies. I'm not even talking about unwanted touchings or hugs or whatever, mm -hmm. but like you don't comment about my body. And I, I, as their parents, if I hear talk about that, I stand up for them. There's this concept I sort of like in my head, I call it live. I do my recovery out loud. It's mm. not going to help my kids if I very secretly sort of like, oh, I sure wish so-and-so wouldn't say that about my kid's body. Like they deserve to be 
advocated for out loud in public. Mm -hmm. This is just like, we don't do that. I wouldn't let them slur my children or anybody mm -hmm. else's children. You know, mm -hmm. I think, you know, there was all this discourse in this country around like, um, standing up and you know we don't what do we do with our racist relatives right and we, mm. we 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 affirmatively speak up and go to bat against family members for people who are marginalized or people of color yeah. or whatever and i sort of feel like we could even make that circle we could start it a lot tighter like how about the children at our table how about these mm -hmm. children here who are silently suffering and those of us i i consider it a duty I can see the suffering and I need to speak up. I need to have boundaries and create boundaries until they're old enough to have and behold and hold up their own boundaries. Like we have to help them because you're exactly right. Otherwise, how are we doing anything different? Right. We're and that's not. Right. And that goes into like, you know, like you mentioned, not having the skills set to deal with certain things. And I think in, you know, my own family, that is so true. Not having the skill set as a kid because it wasn't talked about or it wasn't, right. you know, it was, you never addressed it. Or, I mean, that's why I said before, like when you first told me about your childhood, I was like, man, not now, I'm not smiling. Cause it's like, wow, that was amazing. But I'm smiling because it's uncannily similar to yeah. what I've gone through. And I know, but even my cousins and my sister, like just growing up in a certain type of mentality and like a cone of silence about yeah. things. It's, it's right. debilitating. It is debilitating and it's very, um, it's very toxic in many situations. And for a while I felt like, oh, sh like guilty, like, oh, I can't talk about that. It makes everybody look so bad. Mm. What I really have come to peace with is that I understand that my parents were wanted, like, don't talk about, don't talk about that. Don't tell, don't tell people that that's a statement that's like fear. They were worried I was going to get branded as a psycho mm. or our family. And it felt like there was so much social stigma mm -hmm. and social, there were so much, there's like a social minefield. Like we were trying to look good for the neighbors and for the church. And, you yeah. know, if we, if we let our mess out and it's like, mm. whole, like you said, speaking of generations, like the generations above us didn't, everyone didn't have a therapist and they didn't, use shame on a daily basis as a word in every sentence, you know, they weren't on the lookout for the, for the toxic messages that have just been absorbed. Right. And the message that my parents had was if people knew the truth, we would all be ostracized and mm. that's no way to live. Right. Keep it in. Swallow Keep it. it in. Yeah. Keep it in. <laughs> just until it eats you from the inside out. Right. Yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah. It's hor It's yeah. It's it's really wild. Um. So if you were to, I guess, yeah, that was wow. We're already thirty five minutes. It just flies. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I can't. Like I said, I cannot wait. Can you tell us? Just tell us about the book group. Like sure. before we just so that we can encourage people to find it and. Sure. Because so I, the, I mean, uh, the re sorry one thing the reviews. I can't wait. Like I was starting to, I was like, yes, 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 yes. Like, especially what Reese said about the 25 being 25 and wanting to hear this. Yeah. I definitely, when I was writing the book, I was picturing what's the book that I wish that young, isolated, high achieving Christie could have read instead of all the ones I was reading about codependence, which I also needed, but I needed something a little, I needed this. I needed what I ended up living through. 
And the book itself, it opens when I find out I'm first in my law school class after one year, which should have been cause for great celebration and joy. And that is not what I felt. That's when I really became enamored with the idea of suicide because my my life on the outside and my life on the inside were completely opposite. I was so bereft, lonely, and ashamed on the inside. And I knew I didn't know how to change it. I just knew. I just was, I tried a lot of things. I thought I was going to die alone. And on the outside, it's like, I could have any job I wanted. Look at me. I'm going to be so rich. And why wasn't that enough? I was like, mm. this is so crazy. But I thought I was ashamed that having a big career and lots of money and that I'd have great purses, why couldn't that satisfy me? Who did I think I was needing a husband? So I find my way to this therapist, Dr. Rosen. It's not his real name. And he said he could transform my life and bring, make me um, available for friendships and a partner and motherhood, all of it. All I had to do was join his group and be willing to tell the group every single thing in my life, like have no secrets from the group. And I was like, like, I thought I would try it for a year and then I'd go get a real therapist and I ended up staying for ever. (laughs) And I did, my life did transform. It took more than a year. It took, it took a book's worth of antidotes for me to develop long lasting friendships, find a partner who was not a drunk or a drug addict actively and set myself on a course that I'd always wanted. It took, it took a lot of time and a lot of crying and gnashing. And I did that in group with six other witnesses and Dr. Rosen. That's incredible. That's really, really incredible. I know I'm, I'm uh, especially with the state of the world at this moment. I mean, it, any given day, my anxiety is like. I know, right? It's like, hey, so you're just having all of these magical, wonderful things. I'm like, I'm. I have a good life too, but there are some days I'm like, I could, I could see myself really, you're describing group in a way that I've not heard it described. And I really could see myself like, I want to try this. Like, I don't know if that sounds strange to say, I want to try this, but um, I love the idea. I'm, I'm, you know, extroverted. I love the idea of like having these conversations with people. And, and like you said, like they're witnessing you and, and you're witnessing them and your, your, the commentary back and forth, I think is so cool. So, so yeah. cool. Well, um, that's our time. Um, yeah, I, Christy, thank you for your for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, so excited. I, I, I will, I'll let you know when the episode comes out, and um, we'll make sure people get a hold of your book and your other right. books. We didn't even talk about. <laughs> well, that's um, the only one so far. So I appreciate. You know, I did an event in November 2020, and there was a physician there. She's a psychiatrist. And her name is Dr. Nina Vasen. And she said to us, the audience and to me, that there were three main reasons why people do not seek mental health treatment. And when they finally do, on average, it's six years after the onset of the problem when they could have first sought help. And we were like, what are the three reasons? She said, it's (laughs) stigma, stigma, and stigma. Yeah, That's why people do not. So your work here is tremendously important in transforming you're giving people story and, you know, maybe I'll listen to this with my kids or the people that I love that I see hurting who are younger or older, you know, this is, this is the work of transformation. So thank you for the platform. Thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, we're, we're excited. We're going to keep creating 
uh, more and more, you know, we, we have these just amazing collaborators and contributors, and then mm. we have to cut it down. So there's going to, there's yeah. so much more, to, there's so much more to share, but, um, but yeah, thank you so much, please. Are you in Chicago right now? I am. You are. How is the weather up there? Is it, are you? It's snowing. It's snowing. Is it? Okay. Cause <laughs> I'm like, I'm going back to Louisiana on Friday and I was checking the weather. Cause here it's like pretty cold, windy and you know, it's icy or whatever. Um, and it's going to be like 80. Um, I can't even picture that. It kind of sounds like a dream, but that's like a little bit much. I don't know. It's a little extreme. I'm like, I'm going to get sick next week. It's good. Yeah. I'm going to, and then I'm going to come back and be back in winter. I'm going to get sick again. Right. Um, yeah. I was like, and I was checking the app and it's like 91% humidity. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> like, Going to the bayou, baby. Uh, I mean, seriously, we are from like South Louisiana. I was like, okay. What town? Right. Is it Huma? No, but my, my stepdad's actually from, um, from Fouchon. Oh, um, which is around Homa. Like Homa is like the big city for them. And, uh, but my, and he's been in my life since I was eight. So he's, you know, um, and uh, my family family is from Scott. So we're like outside of Lafayette. If you know where Lafayette is, sure. it's kind of like, it's like in the middle of the O. Um, so yeah, we're from there. But like, I mean, my brother-in-law is from Kaplan and I got family from Karen Crow. And if I, oh if I turn on- if I turn on the accent, you're like, oh, you're from there. That's amazing. I hope <laughs> uh, you have a wonderful trip. I'm excited. No, I was serious. My mom seriously froze like two king cakes in the freezer. She's like, they're <laughs> in the freezer for you. Good. <laughs> so, I hope you get the little baby. I know. I was like, mom, please. Because I, I try to make it, um, you know, because you can kind of make it homemade with cinnamon rolls. And yes, can, yes. You can kind of make it happen. But here, I good luck finding American stuff, you know, so like, <laughs> right, I'm excited. Right. I'm excited, but thank you so much, Christy. Um, please stay connected with us and I'll stay connected with you. And if we can ever partner again, or if there's anything that, you know, we can do for you, let us know. And, um, we're excited. Hopefully in-person events oh, pick yes, back please. up when the weather ends. Yeah. Good. Let's, do it. <laughs> let's go it. back outside. Yeah. yeah please stay awesome. In touch. Yeah. 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 Have a great, have a great weekend. Oh wait, it's Monday. Have a good week. <laughs> yeah. You too. Safe travels. <laughs> bye. Bye. This is Unsilent. Thank you for listening. Today's episode was hosted by Lance Bordelone and produced by me, Eli Lawson, Lance, John Panacucci, and the rest of the incredible No Stigmas marketing team. Special thanks to Christy Tate for taking the time to share her story with us. You can find a link to her book in the show notes. To go beyond the show, connect with us on social media or visit nostigmas.org to learn more about mental health topics. This is our final episode of season one, and everyone here at No Stigmas wants to say Thank you for embarking on this journey with us and diving into mental health advocacy. Everyday advocates like you and me play such a crucial role in helping everyone get the care that they need. So thank you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed the show or found it helpful in any way, we would love to hear from you. You can write us a five-star review anywhere you listen to podcasts or connect with us directly. We're always looking for new topic ideas and ways we can improve. The best way to reach us is through social media. Links to all that in the show notes. And finally, remember that truly, whatever you're going through, you do not have to do it alone. Be unsilent. We'll see you soon.